I know we have one more service this evening to conclude this gospel meeting, but I want to take an opportunity this morning to express my thanks, my sincerest thanks on behalf of not only myself, but my family and Yelmer this week uh, for the hospitality and the welcoming that you have uh, given us. We love each and every one of you. We love this congregation. We enjoy spending time here. I appreciate very much the invitation to be able to share God's word with you this week. Um, thankful to Van and Diana for keeping us. Thankful for all those this week that have fed us and had us in your homes. We thank you for that hospitality and that love that you have showed us. We have certainly had a great week um, as far as we are concerned, and we hope that it's been a great week for you as well. This morning, we're going to talk about the day that the fountain was opened. And we're going to look at a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1, where the Old Testament prophet here says, In that day... There shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now there's many Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ and about that day of salvation. And this one in particular mentions that in a, a specific day at a specific time that God would open up that fountain of salvation. That he, was, he would open up that way to get back to God and to have our sin and our uncleanness washed from us. And so we're going to zoom in on that day this morning and we're going to talk about the most important day in human history, that day when Jesus Christ gave his all to save you and I. But I want us to recognize and remember this morning as we get into this story about that specific day and what Jesus went through for you and I, to remember that there was a reason that he came. The reason that he came, that God sent his only son, was because we are a world that needs a savior. It's because all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, we have ch shown a tendency as humans to rebel against God, to sin against Him. And Adam and Eve committed that first sin in the Garden and they were cast out. And as a result of that sin, they brought sin into the world. Now every person that has lived and comes of age to be able to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, what God wants for us, all of us, the Scripture says in Romans 3.23, have sin and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that sin is death. That that sin that all of us have committed in our life creates a gulf between us and God. Isaiah put it this way in chapter 59 and verse 2. He says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And so this morning I want each and every one of us to have a recognition that the reason that Jesus Christ was sent to this earth and the reason that he was willing to give his life on that cross for you and I is because we needed him too. Because without him, we have no hope of salvation. Because without him, we are on our own, lost in our own sin, facing the consequence and the just consequence of our sin, which is eternal punishment. And Jesus came on that day to save us. I want us to remember that Jesus was born of a virgin as, as was prophesied that he would be. That Jesus grew up and there was something special about him. We see a story when Jesus was 12 years old about how he was focused on the will of God, his spiritual father even at that time. Going to the temple and speaking with those, those professors of the law essentially of the old law. And, they were, and he was answering questions and talking to them and they were amazed. And he put his parents through a little bit of worry and stress there for a few days while they're searching for him. And he said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? 
And Jesus grew up and he was a carpenter and he worked with his hands while on earth. But at about the age of 30, he went and he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. And he began his ministry. And Jesus began to teach about a kingdom that was coming. A kingdom that had been prophesied from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44. There's a prophecy that said the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. That there is an eternal kingdom that was coming. That any members of that kingdom would be granted life eternal. And Jesus began to teach about this kingdom. And he said it's at hand. It's coming. And Jesus taught about repentance. And he taught a new moral standard, a new way to live as Christians, as followers of his. And he taught with authority. And the people heard him and they recognized that authority that he had. But that authority that Jesus taught with, it angered the Jewish leaders of that day. And so as we zoom in and and getting to that most important day in human history... I want us to recognize that as a result of Jesus' teaching about that moral standard, about the kingdom that was coming, and about the fact that he was the Son of God and the Messiah to the world, the Jewish leaders rejected him and his teaching. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 47, it says, He taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. And they could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now when Jesus was teaching this kingdom Uh, doctrine and teaching this new moral standard, the crowds loved it and they ate it up and they, they heard that authority with which he spoke. But it was those Jewish elites, the chief priests, the scribes, the chief of the people who did not like the authority that he had, that he spoke with. They did not like the power that he was wielding over the people and he did not meet their expectation of a Messiah because they wanted a king, a Messiah that was to come and challenge Rome and bring Israel out of Roman bondage and establish a physical kingdom where Israel would once again dominate the world. And that simply was not what Jesus was about. And it was not the kingdom that God intended to establish. And so they rejected Jesus and sought an opportunity to destroy him and to put him to death. But I want us to recognize this morning as well that Jesus was not crucified on that cross because he was taken against his will. Jesus was prepared to die. And knew that this was necessary for your salvation and for mine. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31 it says, He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes. And be killed. And after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Jesus' own disciples didn't want to hear that message that Jesus was going to have to die. But Jesus all along knew it was part of the plan. He knew that he, his death was needed in order to be a sacrifice for your and my sins. Jesus could have stopped the events that, are, that we're going to talk about this morning at any time. He had the power to do that. But he said it must come to pass for you and for me. Notice what he says in John chapter 10 verse 17. He said, Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And we think about Jesus sometimes and we think about the physical suffering that he went through and we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But we think about them taking him and arresting him and beating him and putting him through all those things. And sometimes I think we forget that that was not something that they forced upon him. It was not something he was unable to stop. We sing the song, sometimes he could have called 10,000 angels. It's a true message in that song. Jesus had the power at any moment to stop it, but he didn't. He was prepared to lay his life down for you and for me. Pilate didn't take his life. The Romans didn't take his life. The Jews didn't take his life. He gave it for all of us. 
In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14, we're going to see the way in which these chief priests and these Jewish leaders find a way to get to Jesus and to put him to death. And it's going to come through one of Jesus' followers named Judas. In Matthew chapter 26 verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him thirty or for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought the opportunity to betray him. Now remember, Judas was one of Jesus' disciples who had been following him for three years. Now John and the other gospel writers, as they're writing their text, they have the ability to look back and to know what happened, of course, in the past. And so they give us a perspective of Judas that we've already talked about once this week. And I want you to remember that Judas, all the time when he was walking with Jesus for those three years, he was the keeper of the money bag for the group. And John reveals to us that he was a thief and that he had a greed problem and that he began to steal things out of the bag from the group. And so it's no wonder that he chooses money as the way in which he will betray the Son of God. And so Judas begins to look for an opportunity to make some money and betray Jesus. In John chapter 13 and verse 4, we've now come to the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And this is what we call the Last Supper. And before this, several days before, Jesus has come into Jerusalem for the last time. And you remember that story, how the people would put palm leaves down before him and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they were worshiping and praising his entrance into Jerusalem. And then here we come the night before his crucifixion and Jesus is gathered with his, with his disciples in that upper room, in that last supper. And it says, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, at the Last Supper, this is where Jesus would institute the communion service that we follow each Sunday morning. This is where he also be gets down and begins to wash through every disciple's feet. And I want you to recognize that that includes Judas. Judas, the man that was seeking an opportunity to betray him. Judas, who wanted to make some money off of his relationship with Jesus. Jesus got down on his knees and he washed this disciple's feet. What an act of love and compassion that is. And I think we can see that that's not a normal human reaction. But that is the reaction of a Savior sent from God to save us. That is the reaction of God made flesh. It's contrary to human nature, but not contrary to the love of God. And so Jesus did this extreme act of service. And he told them that he did it to them as an example for them. That they should go forth and do that for each other. And then after he finishes this, it says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified. And said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Jesus knew not only that he would have to give his life, but he knew the way in which that would take place. He knew that Judas would betray him. And even having that knowledge, he still bent down and washed Judas' feet. And then he reveals this truth to the disciples and he says, One of you is going to betray me. Now John is leaning up against Jesus and he's right next to him. And Peter, the scripture says, sort of indicates to John, Hey, ask him. Ask him who it is. Because they're all looking at each other confused, not knowing who Jesus is talking about. So John asks him, who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered, he it is, to whom shall I give a sop? A sop is a morsel of bread. And he, so he says, to whom I shall give that morsel of bread when I have dipped it? 
And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Now before this point, Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus. He's already agreed to 30 pieces of silver in order to betray him. He's just looking for that opportunity to do it. Jesus knows what's coming. He's washed Judas's feet, looked him in the eye, said, there's someone here that's going to betray me, was asked who it is, and said, whoever it is that I dip this piece of bread and give to, and he dips the bread and then he gives it to Judas. And I imagine him looking Judas squarely in the eye there. And Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. Judas knew that Jesus knew what he was about to do. And Jesus looks at him and he says, essentially, whatever you're going to do, do it now. Do it quickly. Now the scripture here says that Satan entered into Judas. And some people will say that Satan possessed Judas. And Judas had no choice in the matter and it was out of his control. I don't believe that that's the case. I believe even in the first century and even in the time of the gospels that we see where there were possessions that took place, I believe that there was a willingness and an acceptance that had to take place in order to allow that unclean spirit within, in order to allow Satan a place. And we've already discussed that place that Judas gave to Satan and it was greed. It was his desire to be a thief and to gain money in ungodly ways. And so he allowed Satan inside him. He decided to, care, to follow through with his betrayal of Jesus. After Judas left, Jesus and the other disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus withdraws himself away from his disciples and he prays to God. This was somewhere that Jesus frequently went to pray. And he prays this prayer three times. Says he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I just want us to recognize here that even though Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% man and 100% flesh. And he did not want to have to suffer what he was about to suffer. He did not want to have to walk through what he was about to. He was prepared to, and he had the correct spiritual perspective. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. But Jesus, the human part of him, as any of us would, was fearful and anxious about what he was about to have to go through. Notice what Luke says about him in Luke 22, verse 44, where here in the garden he's praying. Luke says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke here says that Jesus is in agony, yet he has not received a single stripe yet. He has not been beaten yet. This was not a physical agony that Jesus was going through. This was an emotional agony. This was a mental anguish that he was suffering, knowing the events of the next few hours and what they were going to entail. Now Luke here says that he, he sweats and his sweat was as great drops of blood falling to the ground. And some people simply take this to be an illustration of how greatly Jesus was distressed and how great the amount of sweat was that he was sweating. But it's actually interesting to me that there is a medical condition and it's called hematidrosis where this actually does take place. And it's when a person is under extreme physical or emotional distress, the capillaries that feed the sweat glands will burst and blood can mingle with the sweat as it comes out. And I think it's interesting that Luke, being the physician, puts this little detail in here about Jesus' agony. And so whether this was just a great illustration about how, how great Jesus was sweating and how anxious he was, or whether this was literally Luke's sharing a perspective of us of that great agony and distress that had caused Jesus to literally begin to sweat blood, either way, we see that Jesus was in this extreme amount 
of agony. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47, we see the time coming when Jesus would be arrested. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Now Jesus sees Judas, his friend and follower for three years, who has chosen to betray him, and he sees the Roman soldiers trailing him and the Jewish leaders behind them. And then Judas walks up to Jesus and he kisses Jesus. A kiss is a sign of friendship and a sign of love, a sign of care. And it was with that sign of friendship that Judas chose to betray his master. They arrested Jesus. Now if you'll remember, Peter tries to defend Jesus and he draws his sword out and he cuts the ear off of the high priest's servant. Jesus told him to put it away. That's not what he was about, not what he wanted his people to do, to fight physically. And then I want us to recognize here in verse 55... In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, there was a crowd of people that had gathered around here in the garden as Jesus is arrested and these events are taking place. Judas has betrayed him. And there's a crowd that is gathered and he says to the multitudes, are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And I want us to think about a Jesus here who was already in such extreme emotional and mental anguish and agony that he was sweating great drops of sweat as if blood or perhaps actually sweating blood. Such was his agony. And then he is, he is betrayed by one of those men that is supposed to be his followers, his friend. And then he sees crowds and he sees people in this crowd that he has taught and that he has sat with daily, teaching them the precepts of God. And he looks at them in earnest and says, I sat with you daily, I taught you, I visited with you. And he said, you didn't come at me with swords then, but you've come out now with swords to take me. And you can feel the hurt and the pain there. But then not only that, but all of the other disciples, not just Judas, but all of them, turn and flee and run. And Jesus is left utterly alone, completely by himself, to face the most difficult time of his life, completely by himself. And they laid hold on Jesus and led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Now Caiaphas was the current high priest of the Jewish people. John mentions that they also brought him before Annas, who was the former high priest of the people. And Caiaphas, it seems, wanted to have Annas' approval as well for wanting to put Jesus to death. And he seems to have gotten it. Both of these men, Annas and Caiaphas, agreed that Jesus should be put to death. Peter is the one disciple that sort of semi-follows along doesn't completely forsake him. He follows along, wanting to see what's going to happen to his master. But even Peter, you remember, would deny him three times that he knew him. And then we have that image of Jesus looking over after the rooster crows. And Jesus and Peter's eyes meet. And the scripture says that Peter went and he wept bitterly. Because he had forsaken his master. So here Jesus is, all alone. 
at this gathering of the Sanhedrin council. This was the first trial that Jesus would go through. This was the Jewish portion of his trials. They put up false witnesses to speak against Jesus. One of those false witnesses said they heard Jesus say he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now we know Jesus was talking about his own body and not the physical temple there. But they, they talked about this type of blasphemy that Jesus had stated. And then the high priest begins to ask Jesus questions. But Jesus is silent and he wouldn't answer a word. Matthew 26, 63 said, Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now this is the trap that they want Jesus to fall into. They want him to admit that he is the Son of God because they will consider that blasphemy and worthy of death. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. That's King James for affirmative. That's King James for saying, Yes, I am. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, hath he, he hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. Now Jesus, all he did was look at them and tell them the truth. He said, Yes, I am the Son of God. And he said, it won't be long and you will see me sitting at the right hand of God. You will see me coming in the clouds. You will see me have that power. And that was enough for the high priest and the council. And they decided to put Jesus to death for reasons of blaspheming against God and the old law. And in verse 67 it says, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? And now this mental and emotional agony that Jesus has been facing has turned into physical suffering. And these people were spitting on him. They were hitting him and striking him. And they were doing it either from behind him where they could not see or perhaps they had blindfolded him. But they were hitting him and then saying, if you're really the son of God, tell us who hit you. Prophesy to us. Show us that you have this power. And they're making fun of him and they're mocking him. And they're physically beating him. And all the while, Jesus never got angry. He did not warn them about his great power. He took what they gave to him without complaint. Matthew 27 and verse 1 says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. After the Jews had had their mock trial before the Sanhedrin council and deemed him worthy of death, they brought him to the Romans. Specifically to the Roman governor, the prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Now they needed the Romans' permission because they were under Roman rule at this time. They needed his permission to put Jesus to death. Pilate realizes though very quickly that Jesus is from Galilee. And he knows that there's a man, King Herod, who's the tetrarch of that region who covers, that covers Galilee... And so he decides, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to send Jesus to Herod and let Herod deal with it. Herod had wanted to meet Jesus for some time because he had heard of the miracles. He had heard about the things that Jesus had done. And so Herod wanted Jesus to come in and perform some magic tricks for him, essentially. And when Jesus refused to do that, Herod put a robe around him. They mocked him. And then Herod sent him right back to Pilate. And so Pilate's going to begin to examine Jesus and ask him some questions. In John chapter 18 and verse 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? 
This was the accusation that the Jews had leveled against Jesus, that he had claimed to be the Son of God, the King, the Messiah. And what Pilate was worried about was not the Jews. What Pilate was worried about was the Romans and the Roman power. And if Jesus really was seeking to be king of the Jews and being rebellious against Rome and seeking to overthrow or start an insurrection, then Pilate certainly would deem Jesus worthy of death. And so that's the motivation that Pilate has as a Roman official in questioning Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? A simple question, but an important one that Pilate needs answered. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. Again, that's King James for saying, Yes, what you're saying is true. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Jesus said, yes, I am the king of the Jews, but it's not what you think. It's not what you're afraid of. It's not a physical kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not a physical place that's going to have limits or boundaries in geography. It's not going to be about trying to overthrow Rome. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's that same kingdom that Daniel prophesied of in Daniel 2 verse 44. That the God of heaven would establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom that I'm king of. And so Pilate hears that, and then he approaches the crowd to deliver his decision. Luke 23, 13, Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Pilate said, this man has done nothing wrong. I've found no reason to put him to death. Let me beat him a little bit. Let me cause him some more physical pain and agony. And then I'm going to release him because he's not going to be a harm to you or to Rome. But listen to the response of the Jews. And they cried out all at once saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Now, it was custom at this time that they would release one prisoner, and they had Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was a person that was going around wreaking havoc and and seeking evil for the people and for Rome, an insurrectionist and a murderer. And yet, that's who the Jews wanted to release. And they wanted Jesus crucified. Pilate tried again to convince them. To let him beat Jesus and then release him. But they wouldn't have it. And they cried, crucify him. Crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, why? What evil hath he done? This is Pilate, a Roman governor, who has no real interest even in protecting Jesus. He's not a believer or a follower of Christ. But even he sees the just nature of Jesus. He sees the character of the man. He sees that there's no evil in him. And he says, why? What evil hath he done? He is not worthy of this. He has tried three times now to convince the Jews to relax on their cries of crucifixion. He says, I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And though Pilate tried three times to just beat Jesus and release him, the Jews wouldn't have it. And Pilate finally gave in to the mob's cries. In Matthew 27, 26, it says, Then he released Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him to be crucified. Now, just before this, you'll remember that Pilate brought out a basin of water and he washes his hands in front of all the people. And he said, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. Now, perhaps for Pilate, that was an attempt to cleanse his own conscience for the decision that he was making that day to allow Jesus to be put to death. And I don't know whether that worked for him or not. But I know he gave in to the mob's cries. He said, I'm innocent to the blood of this righteous man. You know what the Jews said? His blood be upon us and on our children. And they were willing to take on the consequences of that great decision to put Jesus to death that, that day because they hated him and what he stood for that much. In Matthew 27, 28, it says they stripped him and they put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, Jesus already has suffered a night of emotional and mental agony and stress. He has been beaten by the Jews in their mock trial. He has been mocked by Herod and others. And now by the Romans, he is being beaten. He is being scourged and whipped, probably with a cat of nine tails, which was a a Roman weapon that they used in these punishments. And it would have torn the flesh from Jesus' body as they whipped him time and time again. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. And when they put that crown of thorns upon his head, they did not lightly place it there, but they struck it down into his skull. And so now Jesus is bleeding from every part of his body, including his head from where those thorns have dug into his skull. And he is feeling all of that pain. And not only that, but he is now being mocked. Hail, King of the Jews. A a scarlet robe being put around him. And then he's going to be led away to be crucified. And in that state of physical agony, he has a cross placed upon his shoulders that he's called to carry. John 19, 17 says, He bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. And Jesus in this state of emotional and now physical extreme agony is carrying this cross the distance from the city to Golgotha, that place where they would crucify him. And at some point along the way in the journey, Jesus is no longer able to bear the weight of that cross such as his pain and fatigue. And so they take a man called Simon from Cyrene and they cause him to carry the cross the rest of the way for Jesus. And then when they get to the place where they're going to crucify him, most likely what they would have done is they would have dug out three holes. And they would have laid those crosses down flat on the ground. And they would have laid the men that they were going to crucify on top of those crosses. So I want you to imagine for a moment a big hole in the ground, a cross that they've laid on the ground, and then they place Jesus down back first onto that cross. And then they take these very large nails, and at his hands and at his feet, they begin to nail him to that cross, which after everything else that he has already suffered, I'm sure only added to the extreme pain and hurt that he was feeling. And once they had nailed him onto that cross through his hands and through his feet, they would have lifted that cross up and they would have allowed the bottom of that post to go into that hole and slam its way down into the ground. 
and you can feel the impact as you think about just that simple movement of bringing that cross into that hole and slamming Jesus' body down onto those nails even harder. And they've got two criminals on either side, one criminal on either side of Jesus that they're crucifying with him. Now Jesus is there on the cross and as he looks down at these soldiers who had nailed those nails into his hands and his feet that had lifted him up on that cross and allowed him to fall into that, that hole, he looks at them and he looks at the Jewish crowds that cried, crucify him, crucify him. And he said this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How amazing is it to see a perspective of a savior? Not a mere man, not a mortal who would feel that pain and that agony and want revenge, want to feel that anger towards them, but instead Jesus shows love and compassion and a forgiveness in his spirit and asks the Father to forgive them for their lack of knowledge towards what they've done to him. In Luke 23, 39, we see that one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Betrayed, humiliated, mocked, spat upon, tortured, Jesus is hanging on this cross and now even one of the criminals to his side begins to mock him. If you're really the Christ, save yourself and us. If you really have that power, show it to us now. But the criminal on his other side defends him and says, this man has done nothing wrong. And this thief on the cross that we like to call him saw, I think, the same thing that Pilate saw in Jesus. He saw a just man, a righteous man that did not deserve the punishment that he was getting. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This thief on the cross who defended Jesus was given a promise of salvation that day. A promise that he would be in paradise with Jesus that day. Now some will look at this story and they will say, But how can this be? We know the New Testament passages that teach the gospel and obedience to the gospel and baptism. And yet this thief on the cross was promised that he would be saved, that he would be in paradise with Jesus. And yet he had not obeyed that gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind us of two things quickly since we're here on this part of the story. One, I want you to remember that the new covenant between God and man took place at the death of Jesus Christ. And at this point, Jesus had not died. They were still under the old covenant and the old law. But two, I want you to remember that while Jesus was on earth, he had all the power and authority given to him by God the Father. And multiple times through the Gospels, we see Jesus forgiving people of their sins and telling them they're forgiven because he's God. And Jesus had the power to forgive whoever he chose to. And he saw that thief on the cross as worthy because of his faith and chose to forgive him of those sins. In John 19, verse 26, we see another special moment here as Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. And then saith he to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Now, I think it's, it's amazing that we think about that Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And he looked down from his perch on the cross and he saw Mary. He saw his mom 
who had birthed him as a result of God choosing her and had done that faithfully. He saw his mom who had raised him, who had kept and pondered those things that Jesus said when he was 12 years old. The scripture says she pondered those things. She kept them in her heart. He sees this woman of such great faith, his own mom, and he wants to make sure in that moment, despite the emotional and the physical agony that he is feeling, he cares so much about her to make sure that her physical needs are going to be met. And he looks down at John. John, who had also forsook him and betrayed him and fled, but who is now standing there looking at him hanging on that cross. And he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother. And that's his way of saying, take care of her. Make her your own. Treat her like she's your own mother. And he looks at his mom and he says, Behold your son. He wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about John. He says, John's going to take care of you, mom. And it's amazing to me to see the care and the love, even in such small details, that Jesus, the Savior of mankind, who was bearing the burdens of the world, had on his heart and his mind at this time. Matthew 27 verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now this darkness that took place was from about 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. This was not a time when it should have been dark. This darkness is also backed up by many secular historians and sources that I'd be happy to share with you at a later time. This darkness happened. And this darkness happened as a sign that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, was being put to death. The darkness was real. And I believe it was the reaction of the creation to the death of the Creator. Why did Jesus cry out this statement, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think there's two reasons. One, I think he was human and he was in agony. And he felt the burdens of sin of the entire world upon his shoulders. And God is perfection. Now the scripture tells us in the Old Testament that God did look upon Jesus there. We hear sometimes people say, well God couldn't even look on Jesus because he can't look on sin. Well the scripture tells us in Isaiah that God looked upon that sacrifice and he was pleased. Not with what Jesus was going through, but with the sacrifice for sin. That God did look upon that, but there was no... There was no communion, there was no fellowship there because Jesus was bearing the weight of the sins of the entire world upon his shoulders. And he was in agony in that moment. And so he cried out this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But I think that there's another and deeper reason why Jesus cried this out. And it's because the first verse of Psalm 22 starts out this way. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Psalm 22 goes on to prophesy about this suffering Savior. And go read that psalm sometime and think about what Jesus went through. And it's very fitting. And it's a prophecy about what that Savior would go through. And it starts off with this phrase. And so as Jesus cries out those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every educated Jew in the crowd that day who knew the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah would immediately connect that phrase that Jesus had stated to the prophecy in Psalm 22. And I think this was another way that Jesus was declaring his authority and his power as the Son of God. And perhaps to turn the hearts and the minds of some of those Jews so that by the time Acts 2 rolls around, maybe they would be ready to repent. And realize what they had done this day. In John 19 verse 28 it says, After this Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. And that the scripture might be fulfilled saith, I thirst. 
Now there was a set, there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it in his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Those three words that Jesus said, it is finished, they symbolized everything that Jesus stood for while he was on earth. Everything that he had taught, everything that he had shown, every miracle that he had done, every Old Testament prophecy that he had fulfilled, his mission on earth. He said, it is finished. It's done. He had become that lamb, that sacrifice for sin, and that bridge between you and me and God. To allow us to have that relationship with him again. And finally, he takes his last breath and he yields up the ghost and he dies on that cross. In Matthew 27, 51, something powerful happens at this moment. It said, behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his, after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Over the next few days, there were going to be a lot of powerful signs to show that Jesus, this man they had so cruelly crucified, truly was the Son of God and the Messiah. One of those was that the veil of the temple, you remember that veil that was there between the holy place and the temple and the most holy place. That most holy place was where God dwelled. It was where no man would step except the high priest once a year to offer sacrifice for the people. Nobody was allowed to be there because that was where God dwelt. And yet this veil that separated man from God was torn from top to bottom. And I want you to know this veil was not a sheet. This veil most likely would have been about four inches thick and about 60 feet high. And yet from top to bottom, as if somebody reached down from the top of that veil and just ripped it in two, it tears apart. And I think the symbolism there is powerful. That no longer is there a separation between man and God. No longer are we not allowed to come to God. But through Jesus, we have access to God. We have access to forgiveness of our sins. We have access to eternal life. And no longer would that separation be in place. There were earthquakes, there were rocks and boulders that were torn apart, there were cities that came down, and over the next few days there were people that were resurrected from their graves. And a lot of amazing things that happened in response to the Savior of the world being put to death. And all of this was proof of Jesus' Godship and His authority. Matthew 27 and verse 54. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. That very centurion, those very Roman soldiers that had nailed those nails to his hands and his feet, that had been party to his crucifixion, they saw all of the darkness and the earthquakes and those signs and wonders. And they said, this was the Son of God. They believed with all their heart based upon what they had seen. And if those who had taken an active part in his crucifixion saw those things and believed in Jesus as the Son of God that day, then so too must you and I choose to read and listen to what Jesus has done on that cross for us and believe that he really did truly do that for you and for me to save us from our sins. What do you think about Jesus today? Do you have that same belief that that centurion was able to come to? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That he came down to this earth to be a sacrifice for sin? That he suffered all of that emotional and physical pain and torture just for you and just for me? Because that's what the scripture tells us. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, a man endued with power from God, 
100% man but 100% God who had the power to stop it at any moment chose to lay down his life. It was not taken from him. It was freely given. And he did it because that perfection that he had lived with was the only way that our imperfections could be wiped out. He became that final lamb, that final sacrifice for sin. And so no longer did we have to bring a spotless lamb or a spotless goat to make sacrifice for our sins. Jesus made it for us. No longer do we have to wallow in the depth of our own depravity, but instead we can go to Jesus to have our sins washed away from him. This is what the Savior of the world, the Son of God, did for you and did for me. But I want you to know that that's not the end of the story. Now Jesus' body is going to be taken down from that cross and given to a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And he's got a tomb that he's going to place Jesus' body in. And for three days, that's where Jesus' body is going to lay. Matthew 27, 64, the Jews have come before Pilate and they're worried because they know what Jesus taught. They knew the disciples were going to want to see a resurrected Jesus. And so they requested that Pilate put Roman soldiers in front of the tomb to guard it and make sure that there was no foul play, that his body would not be stolen. And so Pilate agreed. He said, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, you have your watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. And they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. They would have used some sort of seal, some sort of pitch around that stone so that they would have known if it had been tampered with. And then that Roman watch, those soldiers would have stood there and been on guard to keep anything from happening to the body. And yet what we see on Matthew 28 verse 1 is that in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Now that angel comes down and there's an earthquake and that stone is rolled away and Jesus is no longer there. His body is no longer there. So much so that there's so much fear struck in the hearts of these Roman soldiers that they become as dead men. Whether that means they literally passed out from it or they just pretended to out of fear. Regardless, they became as dead men. And this angel comes and speaks to these women that had come to put spices on the body. And he says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but you're not going to find him here. Because he's not here any longer. He is risen from the grave. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is going to appear, appear over the next several weeks unto his disciples. And he makes this claim about his power after his resurrection. Jesus came and spake unto them saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus did not stay in that grave, but he was resurrected. And he is alive today. And he has all power and authority over heaven and earth today. He is the king of kings. He is the king of that eternal kingdom that Daniel prophesied about in Daniel 2 verse 44 that Jesus taught about and said was at hand. Jesus is reigning as king today, as king of that spiritual and eternal kingdom. What he is asking of us, of you and me, is to accept the gift that he gave us on the cross that day, to accept his sacrifice for sin and be a part of his spiritual kingdom. And if we're a part of that spiritual kingdom, then we, like him, will have a resurrection day as well. 
Just as Jesus did not stay in that grave, but came out of that grave with new life, so you and I can have a guarantee that that will be true for, you, for us as well. And that we can dwell with God and with Jesus in heaven for eternity. And I want you to know there is a promise that one day Jesus is going to return for his own. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 or verse 16 rather says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I want you to know there's coming a day when this reigning king, this king of that eternal kingdom that sits on that throne today, when he's going to come back. For all of those that have gone on, that have been faithful, and all of those that are alive and remain, that are faithful to him, that are part of that spiritual kingdom. And he's going to receive us, and he's going to take us with him to that eternity, that paradise, that heaven that awaits us. And that day when Jesus comes back, when he is seen in the clouds, when those angels are with him, when those trumpets of God are sounding, that is going to strike one of two feelings or emotions inside you. It is either going to to strike an intense fear out of a knowledge that you have not lived right, that you have not given yourself over to Jesus, that you are not a part of his spiritual kingdom, and that at this point that Jesus has come, it is now too late. Or... It is going to strike within you an amazing joy and a peace. To know that everything that we deal with in this life here is now over and we get to transition into an amazing eternity with God and with Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are not a part of that spiritual kingdom, it is the most important decision that you can make. It will change your life forever. Literally forever. You can be granted that life eternal if you'll just submit to him. Jesus did not have to do the things that he did, but he did it for you and he did it for me. Won't you accept him? Won't you believe in him as the son of God? Won't you confess his name today and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? Won't you choose to repent, to turn away from your life of sin and seek to follow after the things of righteousness? Won't you choose to submit to him in baptism, having your sins washed away and be given a new life with him? If we can help you to do that or help you in any other way this morning, Please come as we stand and sing our invitation song.